We are continuing a series entitled Healthy from the Inside Out, 3 John 2. I pray that you might prosper as your soul prospers. And we're looking that from the we're looking at this from the perspective of a theory that talks about three aspects of how we would define health. The first is authentic, knowing who you are. The second is being competent at what you do. And the third is being connected to a group of people. And again, this is a, a, a self-development theory that some psychologists came up with in the 70s. And I'm using this as, as I looked at it and I realized, you know, somebody that's got all of that going on, they're going to be in pretty good shape. But the reality is there's no way outside of Christ that we can do these three things. Not consistently, and not effectively. Last week, Pastor David did an incredible job, I heard, exegeting Colossians, the third chapter. But we're looking at the third one here, being connected, community. What does that mean? Once again, God spends a few days making creation. Everything's good. It's very good. He makes man, but then he looks at man by himself and said, that ain't so good. Because if if we don't create a woman for this guy, he's not going to bathe regularly. And he's not going to eat right. And it's just going to devolve fast. And so we've got to create a helper suitable for this man that will help him. Come on. I mean, the Bible says a help meet, a suitable helper. But the reality is we need help, men. Come on. And that's why God gave us wives to help us along the way to keep us from just degenerating into the couch with the remote and lots of Cheeto dust on our, as we go out with moving on. But God has made a community of people. First Peter talks about this. He's made us into something. He's created us, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy, belonging to God. Community. Then we looked at defining the difference between community and just culture. Is that there are many Christians today that think they're in connected community when in reality they're just they've just imbibing the Christian culture. The proverbial fish on the bumper of the car. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Listening to music that's not quite as nasty as it was before you got saved. Whatever the little check marks of sanctification are around your life. And so we adopt the culture, the secret handshakes and, you know, the language. But the reality is just being in the culture of the church doesn't make it the church. It's not until you're in the community of the church and the fellowship of the saints that it really becomes community. Here at Grace, as you know, we're deeply committed to this. We have three E's, to encounter Christ, to experience community, and to extend the kingdom. And they have to happen in that order. And community is a mess. It's hard work. And tonight I want to talk about one of the aspects of why it's hard work. And I've entitled this message tonight, Connected and Conflicted, Bound in Love. I made this statement a couple of weeks ago that you cannot be a practicing disciple apart from community. This is the place where your discipleship is expressed. Once again... 
You're by yourself. It's just you and Jesus. Nobody's aggravating you. I mean, all of a sudden, you're a spiritual giant. But it's not until your wife or your child or your friend or your not-so-much friend, they're blowing up your world and getting in your business. All of a sudden, you realize that you're not nearly as holy as you thought you were. And then you begin to see some things about yourself and maybe one or two little areas that maybe God continues, you might need to tweak on just a little bit. See, the only way your life can reflect what you believe is in the context of community. It's when we practice all of this great stuff that we're learning that has been imparted to us that we get together and we actually do the stuff. Come on. It's not just the head knowledge of it. It's not some revelational package that comes to us from heaven. It's what we do with it. And then what we do with it, it takes some place, it takes some person, it takes some people, it takes some community where that can be expressed. As we discovered a couple of weeks ago, everything, well, I ought to say everything, most things in our culture today work against authentic community. Because we think because we have seven friends on Facebook, we're in community. Or three people, you know, looked at our kitty cat posts that we, you know, I mean, whatever it might be. Uh, the Instagram of our last meal. I mean, but that doesn't make community. Somebody may say that, but how many of you know that online community, at a very real sense, it's an oxymoron? Community has to be expressed mano a mano. It has to be expressed face to face where we're doing life together. We look in this New Testament of the Bible. It's very simple. Three primary sections, three primary themes. One is a story about Jesus. His birth, his life, crucifixion, resurrection, the Gospels. How to do life in the Spirit. We actually have something here we call life in the spirit. God didn't just plop us down and say, do the best you can. I'll be back for you in 84 years or however many years he's ordained for you. God never intended it to be that way. John 6, 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Someone said it this way, the secret to the Christian life is that you can't live it. God has to live it through you. Isn't that wonderful? You are the original zombies. But then, as another central theme of the New Testament, is then how to do life together. Story of Jesus, how to do life in the Spirit, and then how to do life together. This really is, these are the overarching, this, this is the essence of what's in this testament. Ephesians 2.22, in him you are being built together. But it begins by what? In him you are being built together. And then there's a fourth little part is that last book called the book of Revelation that none of us really understand, but some people talk like they do, so I just kind of ignore that one. 
maybe someday I'll ask John about it and he can explain it to me when it won't make any difference. So I'm not too worried about beasts and horns and eyeballs and stuff like that. I, I got enough to do just to figure out how to live with us. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, we looked at the glorious community of that early church. Bonded together, yes, by the overflow of Pentecost, but also bonded together through crisis. Once again, this early church, they've just had a few weeks of being taught by a dead guy. Prior to Jesus' ascension, he came and he says he taught on the kingdom. Love to have been in that room. And so he makes a number of appearances to his disciples. And once again, the same forces in the religious community and the political community, the same environment that got Jesus crucified was still raging outside the door. But these folks were coming together and they were doing life together. They were formed together in community. It says they devoted themselves to it, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, to the fellowship, and to prayer, those four things. We look over in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. It says all the believers were in one heart and mind. Can you imagine that? How does that work? How do you get that far into an alignment with one another? Well, first of all, you got to be together to do it. That's a little prerequisite, would it not be? I mean, this is not like a Dr. Spock mind meld kind of thing right here. I mean, we've got to have some interchange. We've got to talk. We've got to do life so that we can be in one heart and in one mind. No one claimed that any had his own possession, that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I'm not, this, is, this is not some form of sanctified communism or socialism. Don't try to create some kind of governmental anything out of this, but there's an overflow of life that they were seeing if there's, what do you, if you have a need, what do you need? Do you, you need to borrow my car? Do you need, you need to borrow a shovel? What, what is it? I mean, it was automatic to them. And with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection. Much grace upon them all. And this is amazing. Verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. Incredible. This has nothing to do with the RNC or the DNC or any promise that any individual or party might make. But there was this self-correction, if you wish, going on that, that there was a constant looking around they were doing life enough together. I don't believe that there was a benevolence committee. I believe people were doing life in such a way that someone could tell there's a need. You know, when we have to come and say, I need, I need, I need, like what about Bob? Don't know that movie. Good for you. But I think that we're walking together in such a way that we know there's a need in that life. It's why, and I know we're on hiatus for small groups right now, but it's why that you can come in here on Sunday and you got your Jesus on. Praise the Lord. Get your smack in. I mean, we got, and, and so the reality, when somebody asks you in the lobby on the way to chasing their children or trying to get a donut, and they say, how are you? The reality is they don't really want to know. 
They're saying what they think they should say in that moment. But when you walk into a living room and there's only eight people there that night and you come dragging in and these folk, these folk have been walking with you for the last few weeks and months and they can look and they say, you ain't right. And that doesn't mean you're crazy. But it means something's going on. What is it? And so rather than us having to lose the dignity of having to ask for the need, the need was automatically met. I'm convinced of that. But most of the time, we're not living in close enough proximity to one another to even be able to pick the cue up. So then we rely on pastors and prophets and prophetesses and pastoresses and whatever. We rely on, you know, some, some kind of clergy structure to somehow meet these needs or some governmental structure to meet these needs when God intended for it to be met in the context of community. Gosh. No needy among them. That's incredible to me. And then it says, from time to time, those who own lands or houses. We're not talking about somebody, everybody got an extra 20 here? Anybody got an extra five? No, no, no. Some folk were actually saying, you know what? We just, we'll just go ahead and sell that piece of land we got out in Loudoun County. And we'll just take the proceeds and give it to the apostles. And then, because you know, they probably know better what the needs are. Can you imagine that? People were taking real wealth. Again, not just a little bit of overflow from the paycheck, but they were taking real wealth toward being community. And yet it doesn't take long living together before somebody gets mad about something. We look over in Acts 5 and Ananias and Sapphira struck dead for lying about the tithe. Actually, it wasn't the tithe. It was they gave something and they, they, they kind of lied about it a little bit, and the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to have that here. They drugged their bodies out. Somehow I think that you wouldn't be fudging on your giving statement after that. I mean, I, I mean, can you imagine Pastor Robert taking the offering, you know, the next thing you know, a few people just drop dead in the sanctuary. It's just like, okay, we might want to change up the order of service now because this is not really conducive for church growth. All right. But then we move on to Acts chapter 6, and we find another story here. And what's interesting, it arises from the challenges of ethnicity, perceived privilege, and the use of financial resources. Ethnicity, perceived privilege, and the use of financial resources. This is the first real conflict we see recorded in this community. Old problems that are still being navigated in all sorts of community structures today, be it the church or be it in governments. And we look at the story in Acts chapter 6, and it says the number of disciples were increasing. That's a good thing. But it says the Greek Jews, among them, they were complaining against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Somebody was looking on she got an extra can of beans. The can, my, my can was bent. So the 12, the disciples, they gathered the disciples together. And they said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. So brothers, choose seven men from among you. Now, this is interesting. Now, let me tell you, people have extrapolated a lot of church government out of a handful of passages 
which is really kind of foolish, honestly, because it's not all what's being implied here. So first of all, we're going to have, we're going to vote. There was no vote going on here. It says, just choose some folk among yourselves that you already know are leaders. They've established themselves. They've got fruit. They've got character. It's going to be very obvious. So no, but there's no, there's no, there's no politic and there's no, you know, we're not running for an office here. And we'll turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. You know, it's interesting here that some people think, well, these were the first deacons. It's only one problem. That's not what the original language says. And the reality is many people see this as some hierarchy between elders and deacons when that's not implied by the word at all. All it is saying is that we need this group of people over here to do this so we can do this. It wasn't implying a governmental structure. It was implying function. Important that you hear that. And then what happened when they began to navigate through this? Word of God spread. Number of disciples continued to increase. You see, the problem is most of the money and most of the need of the money of the, were the Greek Jews. And yet the Hebrews come in, and these kind of the, you've got to understand the culture here, the, 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 the Hebrews were the hillbillies. So it's, wait a minute, now most of the money is coming from here, and you guys are kind of stepping in, and you're telling us how to spend our money. We, we think we kind of resent that just a little bit. And if you look at the wisdom and how they navigated this moment, they said, you choose from among yourselves. And if you look, most of the folk that were selected came out of the other group. It's interesting. Beautiful the way that was navigated. It's the first recorded incident of how to get different culturally diverse folks to do life together. You know, we look at a church like Grace Covenant Church, and we look at some of the great divides that we are still navigating as a country. And yet, you don't have to look any further than the, than the early church. In its formational stages, and you see these same issues arising. And yet, they were able to navigate through it. The wisdom of the Holy Ghost came. This is how you do this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good return for the work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. But you see, life together is being woven together around Christ. It's impossible apart from him. And when, con when conflict occurs, please hear the word when. Not in like when the day of evil comes. Say, so, ooh, I hope I can live my life in such a way that the day of evil will never come. Keep thinking that. Just go move into Disney and you and Mickey and Minnie and you guys can just get on the yellow brick road and just, just have the best time you've ever seen in your life. But the Bible says, when the day of evil comes, well, let me just tell you, you get in relationship, you get in conflict, it's when, in community rather, when conflict comes. Because it's coming. And you know the thing that's tricky? You never know where and, where, where and when. It'd be wonderful if I just had some heads up. Now, I've been married long enough, I could kind of 
I could kind of look and tell it's, it's, it's going to be on. I'm not a smart man, but after almost 40 years with the same woman, I, I mean, I've learned to read that face and that body language and realize, honey, I don't know what I did, but I know I did it. And I want to go ahead and apologize for whatever it was that I did or the perception of the doing of that thing. And if you would just give me an opportunity to go to my room and think about this, I'm sure that we could come up with some acceptable solution to make you happier than you are right now. I mean, come on, man. I said, I ain't saying that, but you know it to be true. I mean, you can go, you walk into the workplace and tell, you look, just tell with your boss, it's gonna be one of those days. We learned, we, we, we figured out. And so you get together with some folk, conflict's coming, baby. And often the biggest conflict is not the, is not the conflict itself, but it's from whom the conflict cometh. I expect conflict with folk in the world. They don't think right. Come on, you, you don't talk, they don't think right. They don't talk right. We begin to have a dialogue about worldview or, or, or the issues around a biblical versus a secular worldview. We're going to come into conflict. However, the challenge is when the folk that you are in covenant with, which will be my message next week, is the covenant of community. It's a word that doesn't mean much anymore. But when we come into conflict with one another, rather than just saying, I'm out. I'll find me another job, another marriage, and another group of people that love me better and I can love them. They won't be nearly as aggravating. Good luck with that. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. Listen to the psalmist. It's not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It's not my foes who are so arrogant, who so arrogantly insult me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it's you, my equal, my companion and close friend. What good fellowship we enjoyed as we walked together to the house of God. These church-going folk. And look at the lament coming from the psalmist. I would expect it out there. I didn't expect it. What? In here. It's one of the reasons I'm in here. So let me give you some points, and I doubt seriously I'll get through all of these. But let me give you some points tonight about how to navigate conflict in community. First of all, we have to do some things from the heart, not from the head. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Deeply, not from the head. Because a head will always keep a running tally what they did. It's like a country song. Somebody done somebody wrong. Somebody said if you play a country record backwards, we can't even do that anymore. You know how that goes. It says your dog comes home and you, oh, you got all that. All right. So, But from the heart, not from the head. 
You see, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love not keeping a what? Record of wrongdoing. We'll get to that in a moment when we talk about forgiveness. So first is from the heart. Second is family. These are all Fs, by the way. Love as brothers. 1 Peter 3. Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate, humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I don't know of any more conflicted relationships than siblings. Think about it. Brothers beat the stew out of one another. Sisters just snipe at one another. But when it's all said and done, they're still brothers. They're still sisters. Love is brothers. It's like, I just would like to murder my brother. And I think it has biblical precedent. <laughs> and so just because we're calling somebody brother or sister, it doesn't mean that we're not going to want to have a throwdown occasionally. But it says to love them like family and love deeply. The third is to forgive. You know, forgiveness requires courage. Unforgiveness is cowardly. What do you mean by that? It takes courage to go get a relationship right. It's cowardly just to say. And the courage of confrontation. Why don't we do that? Because it violates our comfort. I'd rather be comfortable with you than to be in covenant with you. The reason that my wife and I have, have had almost 40 years of covenant living together is that we've been willing on multiple occasions <laughs> to violate comfort in order to go deeper in covenant. Don't kid yourself, gentle listener. God will violate your comfort to go deeper in his covenant with you. He will cut across everything that you think you know about him, that you think about you know about yourself, he will cut you down to the root in order to go deeper in covenant with you. And that's exactly what we have, we have to do if we're going to live with one another. Matthew 18 gives us instructions about how to do that. Everybody thinks they got Matthew, oh, Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Why can't we just like Matthew 18? Confront your brother. And if he doesn't listen, go get a witness. And if that doesn't work, we'll chuck him out. <laughs> but you know, Matthew 18 takes some guts. It really does. Matthew 6 is a definition of what I call Christian suicide. It says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You know, you don't see many self-imposed curses. New Testament doesn't talk a lot about curses. That's usually reserved for Old Testament stuff. Deuteronomy 28, et cetera, and so forth. And yet in this particular moment, Scripture is very clear. If you don't forgive, <laughs> you guilty, sucker. 
It means that all of this wonderful stuff called justification by faith, the blood, all of that, that you dance and hop around and raise your hands and take communion on the first Sunday, you negate it all if you don't forgive one another. Oh, my goodness. I don't know about you, but there's this one thing I know I can't do is carry the weight of the guilt of sin. I tried. You know, we feel, oh, I feel all guilty. It doesn't work. But in terms of the fact that all of that weight comes back on us when we choose not to forgive one another, trust me, you don't want any of that. Forgive. Forbear, number four. Last couple of weeks ago, I defined that as preemptive forgiveness. Meaning that you've forgiven them and they're going to violate you again. They're going to aggravate you again. But it's deciding to do it. You decide in advance, I'm going to forgive. You don't wait for the moment and hope that some grace package is going to fall upon your life, but you're choosing. You know, when he comes and he does that thing again, I'm going to be, mm, this time, mm. But forbearance is when, rather than it let it eat us alive, or I hope he says it again because I'm going to be ready next time. <laughs> forbearance is you have preemptively forgiven deciding. Ephesians chapter 4, be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. There it is right there. There's a definition. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And there's but one body and one Spirit. Colossians 3, once again, bear with each other, forgive whatever grievance you have, forgive as the Lord forgave, and put on love, which binds all these together in perfect unity. Forbearance. Number five is forgetting. Well, how do I know I've forgiven? You forgot. It's real simple. You ever heard this one? Oh, I forgive you, but I don't forget. Doesn't work that way. Do you realize that in the divine nature of God, there is no record of wrongdoing? That God chooses to forget? Now, this is God. He's not having any tech problems. No lost emails. Trust me, he's not, he's not lost anything, but he chooses to forget certain things. Hmm. So how do you know that that's the case? One is the emotion is gone. You know you can speak blessing rather than calamity over that person. Now, this is out of a strict context, but I want to apply a principle. Philippians 3, and we quote this all the time because we love the destiny message. But Paul writing here, so not that I've obtained all this or been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold. I don't consider myself to have taken hold, but one thing, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Could I submit as something applicational to that passage tonight? I believe that a deterrent to the progress for many of us, and as great as sin and the memory of sin from self is being tethered to the past through our unforgiveness of others. 
straining toward that goal, but we wonder, why is it so hard? It's because you're tethered to the past. And not just tethered to the past of your own sin or some generational curse, but you're tethered to the past of that person hurt me, and I'm not quite willing to get untethered from that yet. Let me just tell you, every one of us in this room, we have a story. We've been messed up. We've been jacked up. I hear stories. My wife and I hear stories. Pastor Danelle hears stories. I am sure. And we look and we just say, I wouldn't forgive that fool either. I mean, something very paternal and something very masculine rises up in me sometimes of just saying, let me get Pastor Sean and we'll just go to the proverbial back of the building and deal with this. Trust me, there's some of that. And as a shepherd, you want some of that operating in me. A little bit. Not in a sociopathic kind of way, but, <laughs> but in more of a shepherding, running the foxes away kind of way. You understand what I'm saying? Pastor Sean had a young man that he was discipling or attempting to disciple would be a better word. And no lack on Pastor Sean's part, certainly. And I just said, he's a wolf, run him off. I thought, that, that, Pastor Jim, that negate. He's a wolf, run him off. Because there's a pastoral concern for the entire flock. And sure enough, this young man was looking at this place like the club. I'm going to find me a woman here somewhere. It's like, run him off. He's a wolf. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about for many of us, we wonder, why can't I move? Is that you've chosen not to forgive. So, well, Pastor Jim, let me tell you my story. I know it's horrible. I got it. It's heinous. If you're a female in this room this evening, most of you statistically have been sexually abused. It's hard to, it's, it's I don't get it. It's, it's incredible. But most of you have been abused if you're female and in this room tonight. You have a story. Jesus wants to come and touch you, and he will. But somewhere you've got to choose. I'm going to cut that off. And that incident and that individual is not going to derail my future. And I have to stop for time. And I didn't even get to the bulk of the message tonight. It was entitled, The Fences of Offense. Because that's what an offense does. It walls us in. And it puts fences around our life.